This is a re-recording from yesterday. We had some technical issues.
Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 15. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. 
One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Even after hearing all that a king that they choose would do to the people, they refused to listen to what God had told Samuel to pass on to them. The people wanted to be like all other nations around. They wanted a person to be judge over them, to fight their battles, and probably the most important thing, a person who could go out before them. Now, God had provided physical beings and people to judge over them, and he had provided leaders to lead them and fight for them. He didn't have to do this, though. They were supposed to be different than all the other nations, a living example to the world, reflecting the awesome power and character of him. If only they would be obedient and follow all of his laws and precepts, God would do all the things they needed to have done. He showed them that he could lead them. He showed them he could fight for them and would. He fed them. He kept them clothed and definitely demonstrated that he was just a uh, a just and loving king over them. However, there was just one small problem. They could not physically see him. They wanted someone they could physically see and touch, someone they could show the surrounding nations and claim, this is our king. God told Samuel to listen to them and appoint them a king. Samuel told everyone to go home. Let's pick back up with 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphahah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. In your minds, what attributes should a good leader have, a king have? The opening verses of this chapter tell us a lot about the state of the Israel at this time. We are told about a Benjamite, a man named Kish, a mighty man of valor. The original word for valor is keil and means might, power, riches, strength, strong in substance. Right off the bat, we know that this man has a lot of powerful influence in Israel at this time. We are also told that he had a son named Saul. Nothing is mentioned in his introduction about his wisdom or his virtue, his education or his devotion to God or any of the accomplishments accredited to him. Instead, we are told that he was a tall, proper, handsome man. He had a good face, a good shape, and a good presence, graceful and well-proportioned. Is this what most people see as a king or a leader in our day and age? Who are the people that are idolized and trusted? What accomplishments do they have? Most younger people look up to sports figures and actors or actresses as people they want to be most like. Now, I really believe this was the heart of Israel at this time. Notice that when God told Samuel to appoint a king, no one stepped up and claimed it should be them. Not a single leader of any tribe, not a single warrior. They wanted a king, but no one stepped forward. 
if they would have just waited for God to give them a king, which would have been David, it would have been someone after his own heart, a true leader. But when he chose a king after the people's heart, and there is a difference, who wanted nothing more than a figurehead that looked good, he chose this huge, tall man, who if he had no other good qualities, yet he'd look good. You could see him and say, yep, that's our king. It does not appear that he excelled in any strength so much as he did in stature. He was not strong like Samson was. He was not a solid leader like some of the other judges that they had was. He's just there. Somebody that people can look at. 1 Samuel 9, verses 3 and 4. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Now take with you one of the servants and arise, go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalesha. But they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalem, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. Now Saul was a good and obedient son who did not even complain about doing such a menial task. At this time, he is about 30 years old and is believed to have been married with children who are pretty you know, old in themselves. And yet he still lived under his father's roof. One would have to think this is not the first time that Saul was sent to look for, to find donkeys that had wandered off. I mean, look at where all he went. He followed a specific path where he knew the donkeys would probably go and would be able to catch up with them. His obedience is not what I find interesting, though. What I find interesting is God used something so mundane as donkeys to put Saul in a very specific place at a very specific time. How many of us have come across something in our own lives and we can't figure out why we ran across a certain person or, or did something that just really made no sense. But later on, we look back and we saw how God had engineered that particular time and place for us to be. This is what's going to happen with Saul. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He and his servant looked everywhere and did not find the donkeys. When they were getting ready to search the next land of Zoth, Saul began to get worried about his father who would start to say, my gosh, what happened to my son? Maybe we need to go home. His servant, however, remembered that a prophet was in this city. 1 Samuel 9, verses 6 through 8. He said to him, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, 
Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Even though the people said Samuel was old, he had a solid reputation. Three things that the servant tells Saul. He is a man of God. He is held in high esteem by everyone. And what he says always comes true. Isn't this the reputation that we all wish that we have in our lives? Do we live our lives in such a manner that people call you up and ask for prayer in a time of need? Do they look at you and say, I know that person's a Christian. I'm having questions and difficulty. I should go talk to them. Do people see a reflection of Christ in your actions? Or do they see a Christian who does not act like one? What is the job of a prophet? To speak the revelation of God to the people. This conversation shows just how off Saul's heart was. Instead of going to this honorable man of God and asking things like how to become closer to God, how can I help and help my family worship and praise God more? He's going to go to the honorable man of God and ask him about things that don't mean a hill of beans. He's going to go ask him about lost donkeys. As if Samuel was a cheap sideshow magician or a fortune teller. They are going to pay him to boot for the information. They travel up to the city and come across some women who are on their way down to draw out water and ask them if the seer was in town. They told him he was, and if they hurried, they would find him since he just returned that day. Remember, Samuel went to numerous towns every year to judge and to proclaim God's word, but he always returned home. And here he is on this very day back in his hometown. These two men could not find the donkeys, and yet God engineered the encounter they were about to have, but they didn't know it. Was this luck or coincidence that Samuel was returning to his hometown after going around to the different towns? There is no such thing as luck or coincidence where God is concerned. Samuel knew ahead of time that he would meet the who the, uh, God wanted to be anointed as king this very day. 1 Samuel 9, verses 15 and 16. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord revealed to Samuel saying, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Samuel had the inside track on who is he was going to be looking for, but he didn't go look for them. He could have started searching for anyone from the tribe of Benjamin and pester God with, is this the one? Is this the man? But he doesn't. Instead, Samuel went about his business and patiently waited for God to do his thing. There is no rush to find out who the person is. God said it would happen, and it will. As Saul approached, God tells him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you. 
This one shall rule over my people. I have to assume that Samuel has been looking him over as he approaches. I don't think he has a chance to go to Saul before Saul reaches him inside the city gate. And Saul asks him to tell him where the seer's house is. 1 Samuel 9, 19 and 20. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? Samuel does not even give him a chance to ask the question he came to ask. Instead, he immediately tells him to go ahead of him and meet him and meet him uh, the place at the place of worship and eat with him that day. He is not to leave until the next day because he has something important to pass on to him. He then proceeds to tell him, quit worrying about the donkeys. They have been found. That final statement in verse 20, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's household? This may have been a cryptic phrase to hear, but Saul knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew that Samuel was searching for a king to give Israel, to give it what it called for. In his mind, he had to be thinking the same thing that Moses, Jeremiah, and Isaiah all asked themselves. Why me? Saul then gave the typical arguments for why it should not be. 1 Samuel 9, 21. Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? This was a false but humble reply. It was true that Benjamin is the smallest tribe in Israel because of the Gabeah War. But we know his family is a very prominent one in that tribe. Samuel escorts him and his servant to the place where the feast was to take place, and he put them in the place of honor. When we look at the festivals and feasts that the people had, they were, there were designated places of importance. The closer a person was to the head of the table, the more important they were. Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said of to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince, whom your eyes have seen. Jesus' parable about the place of honor at the wedding feast may have been alluding to this. Can you imagine the important people of the city being pushed to a lower place of honor for this man whom they don't know? Even though Samuel would take second fiddle to the king, he was not envious of him or even wishing him any ill will. He did everything in his power to honor him according to the will of God. Because he knew in advance that he would be meeting God's choice for the king, he told the head cook he was to give the choice meat to the guest he would designate the next day. Now, what should this precious dish be, which was so very carefully reserved for the king-elect? One would expect it should be something very nice and delicate, 
something dainty. No, it was a plain thigh of lamb. Leviticus 7.32 You shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. The other half, the left thigh, would normally be given uh, to the people after the sacrifices were made so that they could eat and celebrate the stuff that God has done for them. Saul is placed in the place of honor by Samuel giving him what would normally be considered his portion as the priest. He was giving the signal that he was showing him that this place of honor was now his. The other people at the feast just have to be wondering, just who is this fellow? Samuel treats him not as a common person, but a person of quality and distinction to prepare both him and the people for what was to follow. After the meal, Samuel speaks with him and shows him where he's to sleep for the night. The next morning, he wakes Saul and his servant up so that they can leave. As they approach the edge of the city, Samuel tells Saul to send the servant ahead of him, but wants him to stand still for a while so he can proclaim the word of God to him. 1 Samuel 10, 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? As soon as the servant is not around, Samuel does something unexpected. He anoints him and kisses him. The kiss, like giving the uh, prime piece of meat at the feast, is again an affirmation that Samuel is showing his support for him. This anointing is pretty special also. It is not a neat, as I like to call it, a neat anointing, like you would see when someone takes some oil and applies a drop to the finger or thumb and makes a sign of a cross on someone. It's extremely messy. Psalm 133.2 It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. The closest thing I can compare this to is from the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. When Ian gets baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church, he is standing in a kid's waiting pool that's filled with oil. And the priest is taking a pitcher and filling it and dumping it over his head with each in the name of. This is what Saul would have come close to experiencing. This is not a place to clean up. There's not one. He's out in the middle of nowhere. There, he has no fresh clothes to change into. When he would leave and head home, he would be covered in oil, a thing that everybody could see. Did you notice that this is a private ceremony? Now, no one else is around when this happens. God has not given the authorization for it to be announced yet. If this was a small public thing, the rest of Israel might have major issues with a king being appointed without their knowledge. I don't think it has hit him yet. Is it really true? Am I going to be the king? So that he would know for sure, Samuel tells him three things are going to happen. 1 Samuel 10, verses 2 through 7. When you go for me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, 
The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on further from there and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them. And they will be prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. These things are very specific. Most people are only given one thing that they will experience in their lives and know that it is from God. However, remember, Saul's spiritual condition is not the healthiest in the world. If it was just the two men telling him the donkeys have been found and that his dad is worried about him, well, heck, that's just no big deal because he'd already thought that before they went up to see Samuel to ask him where, if they, where the donkeys were. The second thing would be a little unusual. Again, very, very specific. Three men, one carrying three young goats, one carrying three loaves of bread and one a jug of wine. And they're going to greet you and they're going to give you two of the loaves and you're going to accept them. The third one, though, the third one, though, to be told that you would start prophesying, especially when you are not a very spiritual person, that is really something. It would be like me asking you to go out in public, uh, to stand on a street corner and pray for everyone you see out loud. Would you feel comfortable doing that? God is going to take Saul just as he was and change him by filling him with the Holy Spirit. This is not different than what we experience in today's times. 1 Samuel 10, 8. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Samuel is anointed king and yet is told that he is to go and wait until Samuel arrives seven days later. Can you imagine a leader of a country or our president being told right after they are elected or whatever you are not going to do anything until I offer sacrifices for you and show you what to do. And by the way, it will be seven days before I get there. I really don't think that it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, you might even be given a piece of their mind and, told to, and be told to go take a flying leap. Just who do you think you are? These instructions, however, make perfectly good sense to me. Nobody has ever been appointed king before. So nobody knows exactly what a king is supposed to do. 1 Samuel 10, verse 9. 
than it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. Only God can give you a new heart. He waited until he turned to leave Samuel so he would not think that Samuel did it. Everything happened just as he was told it would. When he prophesied, the people who knew him just could not believe it. Remember, Saul is unspiritual. But with a changed heart from God, he becomes a spiritual person. And this is confirmed when the people who knew him said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Was this any different for Paul after his conversion when he began to preach in the synagogues, Acts 9.21? All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? Or what about us when we accepted Christ? Didn't our friends wonder what happened to us? Didn't they try and drag us back down to what we were before? When he finally returned home, his uncle asked him and his servant where they went. And Saul tells him they went to look for the donkeys. When they could not be found, they went to see Samuel. His uncle wanted to know what Samuel had to say to him. 1 Samuel 10, verse 16. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. Did Saul forget to tell him the most important thing that happened to him? Or was he wise in keeping it a secret? I think he kept it a secret because no one would believe him. Proverbs 10, verse 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Now there was no sense in making this announcement himself. Samuel told him to wait. He would wait until the Lord declared it. Samuel shows up when he says he would and calls the people to Mizpah once again. 1 Samuel 10, verses 18 and 19. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all the calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, no, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Everything is done by lot. When it came down to the actual announcement of Saul's name, he couldn't be found. Samuel went to the Lord again and asked about him. And God said, he's hiding himself by the baggage. When the people brought him out, he was definitely taller than everyone else. And Samuel said, in 1 Samuel 10, 24, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him? The Lord has chosen. Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So the people shouted and said, Long live the king! I almost have to ask if Samuel said this sarcastically. Saul had the image of a king, but not the substance. 
compare that with who people look up to again uh, today. Who are your heroes? Sports figures, movie stars? I would say politicians, but nobody likes them anyways. Who? What is it that makes them so special to you? 1 Samuel 10, verses 25 through 27. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in a book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel went, sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house at Gabeah. And the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept silent. Initially, Saul has a humble heart. But it won't stay that way. Saul started out with so much promise. He is chosen and anointed by God. He is tall and good looking, filled with the Holy Spirit, supported by a man like Samuel, and given gifts appropriate to royalty. He had the enthusiastic support and goodwill from most of the nation. He is surrounded by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. He had the wisdom to not doubt or consider every critic as an enemy. But in spite of every one of these advantages, there is not a guarantee that Saul would go the right way. God has given us a bunch of uh, advantages also. God has filled our hearts and our lives with a lot of spiritual advantages of a ton of them. But none of those advantages in and of themselves guarantees that we will go the right way. We can still choose our own way, but most of us don't. Hopefully we take that hesitation and dedicate it to the Lord. to keep us on the right path and to say no when we're tempted. Saying, I'm going to keep walking with the Lord. I am not going to walk after the ways and behaviors of the world. I am going to receive that filling of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to walk after the path of the Lord. That is really what he wants us to do. He wants us to accept him. He wants us to graciously accept the provision to live and walk and talk and demonstrate to everybody else in the world what it's like to be a follower of Christ. To be able to share with others what God has done in your life. Isn't that all that we're ever really asked to do? To love God to accept Christ, to be faithful and true servants. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you so much for this Mother's Day, the chance to honor all of the moms living and dead for the way that they helped raise us, to honor those that are standing here in the congregation, whether they have children or not, 
each and every one of these women, these faithful women, have had the positive influence on somebody in their lives. Whether it be from work, whether it be your own children, whether it be a neighbor and their kids. I thank you so much for the provision that you've given us, for the opportunities that you offer for us to share you, to show the world there is a hope, there is a promise, and one that is wholeheartedly available to all. You don't want to see anybody fail. You don't want to see anybody perish. And we shouldn't either. Father, when we're approached, let us have the courage to open our mouth and share you. I know that you will put the words in there that that person needs to hear. Thank you, Father, for everything. Amen.